0: in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour.
1: Hello and welcome to Discovery, Australia's national science radio show where science, art and culture collide. So strap yourselves in and prepare for blast off. I'm Melissa Holbin. On this edition we'll feature Mozart Tunnels Faster Than Light. We learn more about Japanese encephalitis and sniffing bad food for a living. But first up, here's the news with Angelique Hutchison.
2: El Nino has never been as bad as it has in the last century according to evidence obtained by researchers investigating an ancient coral reef in Papua New Guinea. This new evidence adds to the argument that global warming is to blame for the El Nino effect. This week's Science reported that the team of UK, Australian and US researchers obtained snapshots of climate history by analysing an uplifted coral reef dating back 130,000 years. They looked at the changes in oxygen isotopes in the corals which indicated changes in the temperature and rainfall, kind of like analysing the rings of trees. The sample sample obtained indicated that El Nino has never been more intense than it has in the last hundred years. The coral reefs were on the Huon Peninsula of Papua New Guinea. The reef terraces are being pushed upwards by tectonic plate movements. This allowed the researchers to access 14 different climactic periods, including 40,000-year-old cold periods and 125,000-year-old warm periods. The researchers compared the current El Nino patterns to those at the beginning of the current climactic period. They expected the El Nino to be the same across the current climactic period but found that El Nino was weaker at the beginning than it is now. It was weakest during cold periods indicating that global warming could be responsible for the increased El Nino effect. However, the study has a limited number of samples and the scientists warn that the results do not prove global warming makes El Nino more severe new scientist reports that the genome of a potentially deadly strain of E. coli has been sequenced by a US team. The work has thrown up some shocking surprises which help explain how the bacteria kills and may lead to more effective tests and treatments. E. coli produces toxins that cause diarrhoea and kidney failure. It is mainly transmitted in infected meat and was responsible for the world's worst outbreak of E. coli food poisoning, killing 20 people in Scotland in 1996. The team found that the strain of E. coli is armed with an extraordinarily wide range of genes that help it trigger disease and resist destruction by the body. The researchers urged that better ways to diagnose, treat and prevent E. coli infections are badly needed. This new information will provide important leads to scientists and the next step is to look at other strains of E. coli to find out how universal some of the newly identified genes are. The researchers compared the DNA from a sample during a 1982 outbreak with the previously sequenced genome of a benign strain of E. coli. The researchers were surprised by the vast differences between the two E. coli genomes. The two strains share about three and a half thousand genes, but the strain from the 1982 outbreak has one and a half additional, one and a half thousand additional genes. The benign strain has just five hundred extra. The magnitude of the differences shocked the researchers and suggested that E. coli strains pick up new DNA at a very rapid rate. It is likely that the DNA unique to each strain was probably deposited by invading viruses. Why the E. coli picks up foreign genes is so readily is still unknown. This rapid evolution helps explain how E. coli as a species is so versatile. It can be found normally in human intestines and is also capable of causing a variety of infections. The genome sequence should also provide new targets for diagnostic tests and may aid the development of an effective vaccine or treatment. New scientists reports that good memory could have a downside, as US researchers have found that genetically engineered smart mice are more sensitive to chronic pain. The smart mice were originally created by researchers at Princeton University in New York. They engineered the animals to make extra copies of a brain receptor subtype called NMDA. NMDA acts like a gate allowing neurons in the brain to be activated when memories are recalled. Adult mice brains have a different type of NMDA than newborn mice brains. The type that exists in newborns holds the memory gate open longer than the adults. The smart mice have extra copies of the newborn NMDA and perform better in tasks such as learning to avoid mild electric shocks. Other researchers from the Washington School of Medicine uh, now report that the mice are overly sensitive to prolonged pain. The researchers injected formalin into the animal's paws and watched how often they licked the wound. The smart mice licked their wounds more often. They also had more active forebrains following the injection. The researchers believe that these areas of the brain are coding the unpleasantness of the pain. When the mice were tested for their sensitivity to acute pain, both groups of animals reacted the same way. One researcher thinks that this could make NMDA a potential target for pain-relieving drugs. Another researcher disagrees. He says that the smart mice lick their paws more often long after the injury because of their better memories. The increased brain activity could also be related to the injury and not the pain. He believes that drugs targeting NMDA could be developed to enhance memory in people whose ability to remember is deteriorating with age, thus restoring juvenile brain features. It's difficult to know who is right, but the confusion illustrates the difficulties associated with trying to improve memory in humans.
1: Travelling from here to there without moving through the space in between is known as teleportation. In science fiction and tunnelling in quantum physics, Ian Wolfe explains.
0: throwing a handful of pebbles lightly at a window and most of them bounce back just as you'd expect but a few of them disappear on this side of glass and reappear on the upper side of the window without breaking the glass welcome to the tunnel effect in the surreal world of quantum physics where the pebbles are smaller than atoms the reason this can happen has to do with the fact that light electricity and all matter and energy have a wave nature as well as a particle nature and its wave nature is what describes the likelihood of an electron or a photon actually being located there or over there. Electrons, protons and photons have been seen to tunnel through an insurmountable barrier. For example, when two quantum particles such as two protons come really close together but don't actually touch, the uncertainty in their positions allows their quantum waves to overlap to some extent. As a result, they may tunnel through the gap between them and interact. This is exactly what happens inside the Sun and the stars, Protons which are kept at a distance from one another by the repulsion of their positive charge can still fuse together because of tunnelling. And that nuclear fusion is what keeps the interior of the sun hot makes its surface shine. Without tunnelling, we would not be here. In modern electronics, tunnel diodes take an electron from here and put it over there without allowing it to occupy the intervening space. Or as the textbooks dryly put it, the penetration of the wave function into the classically forbidden region. Scanning tunneling electron microscopes work on this principle. An electric field is applied to a metal tip so that the electrons on the tip have enough energy to reach a metal surface underneath for a short distance. However, the electrons cannot exist in the vacuum between the tip and the surface. A small current results from the electrons tunneling out of the tip, teleporting from the tip to the surface. No electron can be detected between the tip and the surface. The electron pebble on this side of the barrier has a tiny chance that it could also be a metre to the left, 10 10 centimetres upwards or even on the other side of the barrier so when you send lots of low energy electrons or photons against a barrier a small fraction of them appear on the other side this kind of disappearing and reappearing act happens all the time within individual atoms electrons orbit an atomic nucleus in shells of different sizes and distances, sort of like a planet orbiting the sun, but where the planet is smears out into a ball around the sun the electrons can move nearer or closer or further away from the nucleus as they gain or lose energy say, by absorbing or emitting light. However, the electrons are not allowed to be between the shells. The space between orbits is a forbidden zone. So, how do electrons make the jump from an inner orbit to an outer orbit if they're not allowed to travel the space in between, the no-man's-land Pauli exclusion zone? The answer is that they use the tunnel effect. They disappear from their old orbit and reappear in the new orbit without the bother of actually moving through the space in between. It kind of puts old Captain Kirk to shame. This is what I'd call real teleportation. Captain Kirk had the kind of teleportation being researched in the labs of the University of Wales, IBM laboratories and many other institutions. It's a major factor in unbreakable quantum cryptography. Briefly, you convert the original Kirk into a coded signal, killing him in the process. You then send this file by radio or post or by wire to the receiver, where Kirk is resurrected, destroying his file in the process. You never get me traveling one of the damn things. And of course, the maximum speed is light speed. So, how fast does a photon or electron tunnel? How much time between when it disappears is there before it reappears? Gunther Nintz of the University of Cologne decided to find out and perform the experiment in 1996. He was unlucky enough to have an article about the results of his work, published in New Scientist in that April 1st issue. So controversial were his results, that many readers chose to believe it was an April Fool's joke, pulled by the magazine, despite the denials of the editors. But it was no joke. Dr. Nintz had shown that the tunnel effect was faster than light. Nintz sent a microwave signal through a path where it was split by an electronic mirror into two beams. One beam traveled through the air at the speed of light. The other half was directed at a barrier, which should have stopped the signal cold. Sensors at the other end displayed on an oscilloscope. What they showed were two peaks, one in front of the other, one for each beam. The beam from the photons that are tunneled past the barrier arrived five times faster than the beam of light that simply went through the air. NINCE had sent a signal faster than light. Naturally, this was an unpopular result because it contradicts Einstein's predictions about not being able to send information faster than light. Raymond Chow reproduced the experiment in America and also got a signal faster than light. Chow wasn't happy with the idea of information going faster than light, but he had a problem in that the definition of information at the quantum level has always been vague. He said that no information could be sent faster than light, just random noise. The solution of the majority of of the scientific world was to redefine the word signal so as not to include the experimental results. This hand waving about signal fronts, carrier waves and all sorts of other jargon. Nietzsche's response was to send Mozart's 40th Symphony through the barrier. It got through and arrived five times faster than light. Chow and his colleagues still refused to accept that this meant that information would travel faster than light. Ness said, maybe in America Mozart is not information, but in Germany he has much information. The reason that the physics physics community is unhappy with messages going faster than light, is that relativity predicts an observer in a different frame of reference when moving in a different acceleration may see the message arrive before it was sent, which is interpreted as meaning that cause and effect would be violated. This would be very bad. However, perhaps things aren't as bad as they seem. Let's revisit a little bit of relativity and see why travelling faster than light is connected to time appearing to run backwards and see if it's really what would happen. If light bounced off the face of a clock and travelled that in a straight line, imagine it for a moment. You follow one of the photons that comes off the clock face and therefore you travel at the speed of light. When you look back, you'll always see the same time on the clock face. It will seem as if time is standing still. If you travel away from the clock faster than the photon that carries the, say, 5pm information, then you'll encounter earlier photons that show earlier information, and it'll look to you as if the clock is actually winding backwards. This is all in the textbook explanations and example of moving backwards in time, and it's obviously just the illusion of moving backwards in time. Not so documented in the textbooks is that if you move towards the clock faster than light, you will see more and more recent photons showing the clock face moving forward. The faster you travel towards the clock, the faster time will seem to go. It would appear as if you are traveling into the future much faster than normal. So, in this case, faster than light travel gives you the illusion of forward time travel. Now, this corresponds loosely to what's happened in the case of Professor Nims and his tunneling Mozart. Both the receiver and the transmitter are in the same frame of reference. They're bolted to the bench. So there's no violation of cause and effect. Mozart just gets to the receiver from the tunneled beam faster than light from the untunneled beam. Einstein was thinking of light as Newtonian pebbles, when in fact they're quantum probabilistic pebbles that have a wave-like chance from moment to moment of being absolutely anywhere in the universe.
1: That was Ian Wolfe with Mozart tunneling faster than light, with music Symphony Number no. Forty in G minor by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Still to come: Japanese encephalitis and bad-smelling food. <laughs> For travellers amongst us, Japanese encephalitis means no more than several trips to the doctor before going overseas, resulting in a sore arm. However, this rather nasty virus causes around 10,000 deaths a year. Tony Curtis of the CSIRO talks with David Williams from One Australia Animal Health Laboratory to discover more about the virus.
3: Japanese encephalitis is the major virus that causes brain disease in humans. Each year around the world about 40,000 people catch it, 10,000 die from it and another 10,000 have subsequent brain damage. The disease is transmitted by mosquitoes and it's regularly found in pigs who help it to spread. Japanese encephalitis first appeared in Australia in 1995 when two deaths occurred on islands in the Torres Strait. Three years later, the first case occurred on the Australian mainland at Cape York Peninsula. David Williams from the Australian Animal Health Laboratory is working on a test for Japanese encephalitis. As we already have Murray Valley encephalitis, how close is that to Japanese encephalitis?
4: Well, it's extremely close. It's in fact the most closely related virus in the world to Japanese encephalitis virus and we have it, which is unfortunate. An analogy would be to liken each of the viruses to a soccer ball, the kind with the black and white patches. These two soccer balls representing Murray Valley encephalitis virus and Japanese encephalitis virus would be almost identical except for one or two patches, which would be different colours representing unique or specific parts of each virus.
3: How important is the development of the test?
4: Well, it's extremely important to develop a specific test for Japanese encephalitis. This test could be used firstly in a clinical setting to differentiate between patients that have been infected with other encephalitic viruses and Japanese encephalitis, but also from a surveillance point of view, looking at where the virus and when the virus has incurred onto the mainland of Australia, so when it has travelled from the Torres Strait and Indonesia over to the mainland.
3: How long will it be before we get a successful test?
4: Well, once we can identify the specific patch or protein on the surface of the Japanese encephalitis virus or the Murray Valley encephalitis virus, it should be relatively quickly. And when I say quickly, in scientific terms, that's at least two to three years, possibly five, before a commercial test can
3: be produced. And that was David Williams from the Australian Animal Health Laboratory on SciFile.
1: That was David Williams from the Australian Animal Health Laboratory talking with Tony Curtis of the CSIRO. You're listening to Australian Community Radio's National Science Show, Discovery. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Satellite Comrade Sat. Still to come, bad-smelling food and some tasty science tidbits. (coughs)
3: and it burns, burns, burns The ring of fire The ring of fire This is Michael Archer,
0: director of the Australian Museum fascinated by everything in the world around me. Every day
3: my mind is blown out, my left and my right ear, and I'm having fun. And if you want to enjoy the world like
0: I do, listen to Discovery.
1: And now for some late-breaking hot-off-the-press news.
2: NASA has reported that they have been picking up Earth songs, natural radio waves that can be heard with an online receiver. They have heard the sounds using a very low-frequency radio receiver consisting of antenna and an audio amplifier. This receiver picks up radio waves between a few hundred hertz and ten kilohertz and converts them to sound waves. The source of most very low frequency emissions on Earth is lightning strikes, which emit a pulse of radio waves just as they unleash the flash of light. Some of these waves make crackling sounds when heard through the loudspeaker of a radio. Lightning emissions result in three types of sounds, interestingly called spherics, tweaks and whistlers. Food in space.
1: For all those who have considered travelling to Mars but have been concerned at the lack of interesting tasty food for the two-year round trip, take heart. NASA is investigating ways to get good, tasty food into space. At the moment, it costs about £80,000 to launch a kilogram of anything into space. That's about £15,000 per apple. Currently, astronauts of the International Space Station primarily eat freeze-dried food to which water is added. The main concern of scientists is a psychological one. They think astronauts may suffer without a variety of fresh vegetables. The answer is to grow some food. For short trips, vegetables such as lettuce, spinach, carrots would be grown in a fridge-sized unit called a salad machine. On longer journeys, they will grow veggies in greenhouses on Mars. Martian astronauts will have a vegetarian diet, as it's not practical to rear animals. But to create as much variety as possible, using only a limited number of ingredients, scientists are reducing power consumption of machines such as the extruder, which uses heat and mechanical force to convert soya into meat and cheese substitutes. And the prize result of all this hard work and research? A vegetable-based pizza with meat and cheese tidbits.
2: And finally, this week the Sydney Morning Herald revealed that doctors are now set to clone humans. No longer in the realms of horror sci-fi, a controversial Italian fertility expert will attempt to produce the first cloned human within a year. Dr Severino Antonori, who runs a fertility clinic in Rome, has already helped a 63-year-old woman to have a child and a 59-year-old woman to have twins. He hopes to create the cloned baby, by injecting the nucleus of a man's skin cell into a human egg which has already been stripped of its own genetic material. The developing embryo would then be implanted into the womb of the mother. Only the US and Germany have laws to prevent such an experiment going ahead, although in Italy Antonori will have to face the wrath of the Vatican. While in fact Britain's House of Lords has voted to allow scientists to clone human embryos for research purposes, that is, for therapeutic cloning only
1: and that's all from us in this edition of Discovery if you would like to contact us you can reach us via email at discovery at zip.com.au that's dis- discovery at zip.com.au. Contributing to the f- tonight's program were Ian Wolfe and Angelique Hutchinson. Discovery has been produced by Christine Brown in the studios of 2SCR Sydney with technical support from Gina Satori. Discovery is broadcast nationally via by SAT by the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. I'm Melissa Holbin. Join us for more science next week on Discovery.